So last week, uh, we dove into the Apostle Paul's letter to the Holy Ones in Ephesus, and he greeted them and us with the grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the peace that that grace makes possible. Remember when you first learned how to write letters in school? Do they still teach that in school? Or emails? Letters. They tell you how to line up the signature and the greeting and, and what was appropriate to, to write. And like normally, we, now we trust this. Like You start typing, and Microsoft Word pops up, or Pages pops up, and it's like, it looks like you're typing a letter. And so like that um, is, is how we now attempt to be perceived as professional grown-ups, right? Well, a letter in Paul's time, there was a form also. Uh, there was a greeting, and that greeting we read last week, that was usually followed by a thanksgiving. But Paul does something special here in this letter. It's a little riff. Well, it's a, it's a big riff. Before he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. That's the Thanksgiving. That'll be next week. Um, and, and I'm really excited for next week in verse 15. Uh, my friend, good friend Dave Crispell is going to be our preacher next week. And Dave, with his wife, is starting this nonprofit uh, called Jubilee Home in Durham. And I'm sure he'll tell a lot about it. But in between last week's passage and next week's passage, we have this week's passage that Will's going to read for us from the uh, Revised Standard Version. That's chapter 1, uh, verse 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us all wisdom and insight, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him, according to the purpose of him, who accomplishes all things, according to the counsel of his will, who he, <clears throat> we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, <clears throat> who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Will. Good work. Um, But if you had actually read it correctly, (laughs) you wouldn't have paused at all. You probably wouldn't have even taken a breather. Because you see in the midst of Paul heaping praise and blessing and exclamation, on and on and on, he fails to even punctuate. 
in this passage. After all, who has time for punctuation when you really start to talk about who God is and what his grace means for us? In the Greek, we find 201 words in these verses. No punctuation. It's a gushing Jewish prayer of verbs. These verbs, blessed and chose, destined and bestowed, lavished, made known, set forth, unite, accomplished, appoint, sealed. One of the first of these verbs is bless. Blessed be God, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Paul's best prayer reflex is to bless God. The best thing Paul can do, and he knows it, is to bless God. This seems really obvious, but that's not my first prayer reflex. My first reflex is to ask God or to question God or to complain to God or to rush God. But Paul's approach falls right in line with a really Jewish way of talking to and about God. To bless a God that doesn't need our blessing. Who in actuality, like we sang a minute ago, is the fount of every blessing. Even the ones we volley back at him. You get that? That's, that's subtle. It's a subtle subtext of this thing. Paul's prayer and our prayer echoes the way we even come to know God in the first place. The song that Katie opened with last week, um, Grace Upon Grace, it had a sneaky good line in it. Uh, I love those when it's like not, seemingly not very complex and it just kind of hits you. It says, all that you ask, your grace will provide. And that's the holy paradox God, that God wants our everything. All the while he needs nothing from us. All the while he made it all and gave it to us in the first place. And he delights in hearing us and seeing us give it all back to him. When we pour our blessings back on God, it's not because he's insecure. It's not because he's needy. It's because he wants to see his grace unleashed in this world. It's, again, that grace that leads to peace. Grace to you and peace in us and for each other. It's that grace that a couple lines down, we're told, has been lavished upon us from his glorious riches. This is flood language. Like this is like, and, and with the glorious riches, like the first image that I have in mind is, is Scrooge McDuck like swimming in a sea of money. This is the kind of grace we're talking about. This is flood language. It's not a sprinkle. This is a God who delights in the flow and overflow of grace. A God that delights in the serve and volley of blessing. Like I said, that's not my way of praying. <laughs> and I think when you, when you think about prayer, it's a good thing to think about every once in a while. Is that everyone has kind of their own little liturgy, even if we don't want to or think about it or ascribe to that. It's a way of praying. And, and there's kind of like three different types of, of prayer. It's like high church, low church, and no church, you know? Um, 
no matter how high church liturgical or how off the cuff spontaneous you want to be, you, you kind of have a form to your prayer. And, and like the best way to figure this out is by figuring out how you're blessing your food, right? Like uh, I was brought up in a, in a Catholic home and we would say, bless us, O Lord, for these are our gifts which we are about to receive through Christ our Lord. Amen. I could do that like without even thinking about it. But then I started hanging out with the Baptists and, and they they were very spontaneous, but they would almost always say with very little difference, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this food and this fellowship, and we, that, we just ask that you bless it to bless the hands that prepared it and bless our bodies to your service. Amen. And like, I think the just is the liturgical word in that, you know? We would always get on our friend Kim, when she would pray, she'd say, I just, I just, and that was the most humble Kim ever was in her whole life. <laughs> so we're all establishing our formulas for prayer, our liturgies, and our, our passage in Ephesians 1 subtly references a Jewish liturgical tradition called the Barakot. And it goes, and, and, and pardon my Hebrew, I have no one in this congregation, I think, that'll ding me for bad Hebrew, which is great. <laughs> Hebrew for the rest of the time. They uh, say, Baruch atah melech ha'olam asher. And that says, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who who forms light and creates darkness. Blessed be the God who makes peace and creates all things. Blessed be the God who gives light. Blessed be the God who renews the work of creation. Blessed be, blessed be, blessed be the God who. That's, that's how they pray. That's in their blood, and that's in Paul's blood as a Jew. Paul's prayer also tells kind of subtly like these little markers and these little hints. He tells these stories, and he retells the story of God forming a people to participate in the redemption of the world. And we get these clues by, by what, God's, what Paul's blessing God for, what he's praying. And when we're talking about blessing, we're talking about Israel. We're talking about God's people. Because, after all, Israel... Their whole identity, their whole formation, even in utero, was to be blessed, to be a blessing. Israel and blessing go hand in hand. The church and blessing go hand in hand. If we remember in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land where I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And then this gets remembered in another one of Paul's letters in Galatians. Galatians 3 says, So also Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
that God would take old Abraham, literally old Abraham, not like old Abraham, and old Sarah, also literally old Sarah, and he'd choose them. He'd choose to make a family around them. And that family would be holy and blameless before him. Israel's constitution in the Torah, what told them who they were, tells them, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So if we remember well, we remember God's people weren't always God's people until God made them his people. God's people weren't always holy and blameless, but now they're holy and blameless because God chose them to be. He had a plan for them, and he has a plan for us. They participated, and we're God's people, and we participate in that plan. We're holy and blameless because Christ is holy and blameless, and the New Testament calls Christ the new Israel that we're included in. We participate in his mission. We're united to him. If you, if you read back through this language, and, and remember we're reading, we're sitting down and reading through uh, Ephesians once a week all summer. So you should be two-thirteenths done or maybe something like that. But, but pay attention when you're reading how many times you hear in him, in Christ, this in language, this union language. That we might be joined to Christ's body and grafted into the family of God. And in some sense, that family was already grafted into the triune family of God that's always been around even before creation. So in our passage today, before we get too hung up on words like election or sometimes it talks about predestination, let's all agree that the original Election was settled long ago in the intimate life between Father, Son, and Spirit. That the Father chose the Son and has always chose the Son. He's known the Son. He's always sent the Son. He's always loved the Son. And once the Son took on flesh, He opened up a way for us to become sons and daughters. That's the good news. You can cheer if you want. <laughs> that where once we were unholy and blameful, the Father now looks at us and sees Christ, His Son, holy and blameless, chosen in Christ. God chooses us because He chose Jesus. And before we get too hung up on moralism, which happens sometimes even if we try not to, on being good, you know, that's our impulse. We want to be good. Well, sometimes we want to be good. I have little kids, and they don't always want to be good. Before we focus on trying to be good to earn anything from God, let's remember that grace is a gift, and gifts can't be earned. That would be a wage. <laughs> that would be something you get paid, and, and Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And, and that reminds me of like the old... like. Uh, AA maxim, that your best thinking got you here. <laughs> so if you want wages, you'll get wages. Grace is simply God making the impossible possible, making us something 
by his son and his spirit that we couldn't be on our own. And then calling us to what he, he makes us. Calling us to be holy. Calling us to be blameless sons and daughters of God. Tim Keller talks about this relationship between who we've been made and that's sometimes called justification, and what we do, and that's called sanctification or becoming holy. And he talks about it this way. If we say, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't affect the way that we live, the answer is not now that we need to add hard work to our faith, so much as that we haven't truly understood or believed in Jesus at all in the first place. So let me suggest, instead of instead of like a resolution-based way of living, instead of joining into the anxiety systems of the world, instead of a way of living where we, we walk around and all we just, it's really pessimistic, all we see are problems, all we see are despair, and it, it rubs off on us. We see problems in ourself, or problems in our neighbor, problems in this world. Instead of all that, let's walk around with grace in our eyes. Seeing how God has already reconciled the, pro- the differences between how things are and how things need to be. He's already done that in us. He's already done that in this world. And there's just this lag. <laughs> Jesus is Lord, and, and that's, what, that's our primary um, confession. Jesus is Lord. And we're just lagging behind trying to become what we are. (laughs) Not primarily slaves, not primarily acquitted inmates, but sons and daughters of the king. Scripture calls us royal priests, an ever-expanding of people who have no business being family except that we share the same father in God um, and the same brother in Jesus. Understanding and believing in Jesus means becoming intimately equated with the Father's lavished grace. It's this lavished grace that Paul blesses God for. It's overflowing grace. It's incomprehensible grace. Impossible, inexhaustible grace. And it's this grace that calls us beloved. Beloved. How, how about that? I think the first thing, if we're, if we're truly beloved, the first thing that that means is that we're able to be loved by the Father. That sounds so simple. The f- basic thing, that we're able to be loved by the Father. Remember one of the more mysterious characters that's in John's Gospel. We, we only know him as the beloved disciple. Like that's his whole identity. The beloved, the one who Jesus loves. And probably for that, that character in, in John's Gospel, the two most vivid scenes that we have of him are first that he, like, recline, it says, He reclined with his head on Jesus' chest. Like that kind of intimacy 
that kind of closeness, that kind of trust, that kind of care. Him putting, as a gr- presumably a grown man, his whole weight and hope on Christ. And then the other scene is at the foot of the cross, and we talked about this during our Lenten season, and it's this beloved disciple that Jesus looks down, and he points to Mary, and he says, John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son. And he makes, Jesus makes a new family through this beloved disciple. So, we see in these stories that the beloved disciple, the one who Jesus loves and the one who is able to be loved by Jesus, that being loved by Jesus meant being cared for. And I was really proud of Nate going to Charlotte um, to like heal up because that means he's, gonna, he's actually going to let someone help him. <laughs> like I visited him on North Street the other day, and y'all were gone. But... Um, he was like not letting anyone do anything for him, which is, is pretty typical. But hopefully he's laying around and letting someone love him, <laughs> letting him be cared for, even to the extent of putting um, all his weight, all his hope, all his security in someone else, emotionally, spiritually, physically. We also see through the beloved disciple, that being loved by Jesus means being a key part in Christ's family. This is a learned gift. This is something that we need to recover in ourselves and live into, sons and daughters. Approaching God as little kids who are needy, but also just so excited to be in the presence of their dad. Uh, Theologian Todd Billings puts it this way. We don't really learn to be children of God by trying really hard or by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps as individuals. Instead, we enter into a reality created by God's own word where we find our lives not in our own efforts or moral discipline, but we find our lives in Jesus Christ. But we, we buck against this. Uh, there's a story that a um, Danish philosopher, uh, Kierkegaard, tells. And he tells this story about these, this um, day laborer who's going about his business, earning a modest living. And then he gets, he, he gets his bell rung, um, and it's, it's a messenger of the king. He says, we want you to come. And he's flattered. And, you know, this is like you get a letter from the White House. And no matter who's in the White House, like, that's pretty cool, you know. And, and you're going to go, and you want to go and shake a hand. You want to get your picture taken, potential selfie opportunity. Like, you'll probably grab the, the M&Ms that have the property of the White House logo on them. Maybe steal a pen. Like, so you can tell your stories and tell your kids, and it's really cool. Like, you see that when, like, a sports team wins a championship and they're, like, for one day all those guys are patriots, right? Um, so this is what happens to this day laborer. He gets, he gets his invitation to see the king, and he's thinking, I'm going to get something from the king. But he shows up, and the king, um, what, what the king tells him is, uh, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want a, you to be a contract worker for me. I don't want to give you anything. I don't want to give you a gift. I want you to be my son-in-law. I want you to become royalty. 
And the day laborer says, ah, I'm not really looking to move into the palace. Like, wire it to my account. Um, that's a little too much for me. That would change my whole identity. That would change everything I know. That's a little too rich for my blood. And I think it's the same impulse for us that we were called by God. We're called his kids, sons and daughters. And it's significant, like we, in our, our translations, we, we, um, we expand everywhere where it says sons to sons and daughters, and I think that's right. But we also can't miss the fact that when in the culture that this stuff was written, to be a son actually bore a really specific and bigger, better, crazy, big um, inheritance, possibility, uh, responsibility um, in and of itself. So when God calls us sons, again, there's some union, there's some association with Christ and how he's looking at Christ. And, and so often we live lives that we shy away from that. We shrink back from that identity, that reality. We don't want to jump all in to be considered God's sons, to be considered royalty, to be, uh, to have lives that are holy and blameless and, as Paul will say later in Ephesians, worthy of this gospel. And Jesus, during his life, he, he hinted to this, even with his friends that he was hanging around. Uh, later in John's gospel, in, in John 15, he, he, he's around his friends and they they, they fall into these roles. And if, if you have friend, friend groups you, or family that you don't see in a while and then you go back, you always fall into these roles. Like if you're a little brother, you're always going to be, you could be like this major grown-up, and then when you're around your siblings, you're like the same kid you were when you were 10. These, his, Jesus' friends in John's Gospel start to fall into these roles, and they're really comfortable roles. They're pretty good gigs to be, Jesus's servants. But then Jesus flips it on them and, and kind of challenges them in the same way that story challenges us. He says, I no longer call you servants. I don't want you to be my slave. I don't want you to be my servant. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, intimates, because everything I've learned from my father, I've made, no, I've made known to you, friends, and also brothers, sisters. Finally, Paul's prayer blesses God, thanks the Father for the lavished grace that he's given. It's a lavish grace that's given us redemption by his blood and offers us forgiveness for our trespasses. And it's that redemption and that forgiveness that make us different kinds of people. It's, it makes us redeemed people, but it also makes us redeeming people. We, we, again, volley that back in the same way we're blessed to be a blessing, we're redeemed to be part of the redemption of others. We're forgiven to be part of the forgiving of others and to be forgiving people. Look at that in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. And, and I think about this interplay between redemption and transformation. Forgiving as God's family, you can't help but have resonances of that parable of the lost son in Luke 15. 
somehow, um, like the main character, sometimes called the prodigal son, some, somehow we'd, we'd much rather receive love without strings attached, right? Like that's a big part of that parable is that he goes to his father and says, I'll collect now and then I'll go spend that money how I'd prefer to spend it. I don't want to be connected with you. I don't want to be associated with you. In fact, he disassociates himself so much that um, it, it's, it's such a strong statement. It's almost as if I prefer if you are as good as dead to me because I'll go ahead and collect my inheritance. I'd prefer to not be your son. The, the story then has that moment where he, he's, he gets tired of running. His resources are depleted. He finds himself, again, a hired hand, eating the stuff that he's feeding the pigs that he's been hired to feed. In Luke, in Luke 15 it says, When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the irony. is It's never worthy in the first place. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, he has this like cued up thing that he was probably thinking about all the way back to his father. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him and he calls to his servants, Quick, bring him a robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's now alive. He was lost and is now found and they began to celebrate. That's the appropriate response, Sabrina. <laughs> the son wants to be a, a servant, wants to be a hired hand, but the father will have nothing of it. The father calls him son, even when he's done everything to make himself not a son. That's the gospel. That's the kind of father we have, a father who calls us back to him and throws a party when we come back. And this is when we initially come back, and this is every single time we come back to him, he throws a party. And then later in the story, if you keep reading, you, you, you have this standoffish older brother who's watching the thing, and I'm an older brother, so I kind of get it. And he's like, what is going on here? And he's got this scarcity mindset that would be like, well, I had meal plans for that fattened calf, you know, and now there's no longer that fattened calf that I'd been preparing and Pinteresting recipes for and stoking my green egg to prepare. But instead of that elder brother from that story, we have Jesus as our older brother who's gone before us, who's been looked at by the Father as... Um, what we see at the beginning of Luke in the baptism, my son in whom I'm well pleased, and we get in on that. We also get a Jesus who's, 
who's not standing there with his arms crossed, but is throwing his arms out and probably pushing the father aside to get in on welcoming us, throwing his arms around us and kissing our cheek too. And that's what, that's what lavished grace looks like. That's, what, that's what's got Paul all geared up. And that's why he has thrown periods and commas to the curb. Because he's just got to talk about that. He's got to pray about that. He's got to bless God for that. And so that's, that's maybe a sub-challenge of this summer. We have the challenge to, um, in this series to be rooted and grounded um, to pay attention to all those in him and in Christ things, to, to read and be refreshed by, by this word throughout the summer. And maybe a, another sub-challenge is to, to work on our prayer, and it's not really even work. <laughs> it's just a little bit of intent. Maybe it's to pray bigger prayers and learn from Paul how to do that. Bless the Lord. Bless God. Maybe it's to pray blessing prayers more often. I don't do that a lot. To, to just pray blessing prayer. And like the song we sang, Bless the Lord in my soul, like that's like a psalmic blessing prayer. Where you just sit there and you tell God things about God. <laughs> Not because he doesn't know them, but because it does something in us to do that. That's, that's part of what prayer is about. Is changing us, not changing God's mind. And finally, to, to pray grace prayers. And again, this has a lot to do with remembering. This is, this is th- when Paul thanks God for redemption and forgiveness for his grace that's been lavished upon us. This is thanking God. You know, it's a, I forget who said it, but someone said, if the only prayer we ever prayed was thank you, that would probably be enough. So I challenge you this summer as we, as we grow as, as, as our roots grow and, and develop systems to, to soak up the, the grace that's just flooding and raining and seeping into us, uh, I, I challenge you guys to, to pray bigger prayers, blessing prayers, and grace prayers. Will you guys pray with me now? Father God, we bless you. Because you've blessed us, um, but not just because of that. We bless you because of who you are. Creator of this universe. You've spoke and it was, and you spoke and it and said it was good. You made human beings and you said that's very good. We bless you because you rested on the seventh day and call us into that kind of rest that kind of trust, that we can be loved by you and rest in you, not feel like we always got to be doing or achieving or earning or, or holding this world up because you've held it all together in Christ. We bless you for your generosity in sending us your son, Jesus. We bless you for him living a life to show us how to live and ushering in a kingdom that we wouldn't have any part of if it was just up to us. We bless you for that cross that he died for our sins, in our place, for our sake. We bless you for the empty tomb and for using your spirit to raise Christ from the dead. 
We bless you for that Holy Spirit that you've sent to be a comfort to us, to breathe new life into cold hearts, to spark new creation all around us and to give us vision um, to be a part of what you're doing. We bless you that you promise that your son will return to make things right and to be seated rightfully on the, the throne to be Lord of this world, Lord of this new creation. Father, we bless you for this church and these relationships, imperfect as they may be, but hopeful and growing and um, filled with your grace, your mercy, forgiven and offering forgiveness. We thank you so much. We bless you this morning. We bless you for this week ahead of us and ask that you be um, evident on our lips and in our mind, um, behind our eyes to see with grace, in our hands to work hard, uh, not because we're, we're servants, but because we're sons and daughters. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.